This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Species are dying off at an alarming rate, so much so that scientists say a sixth mass extinction is underway. It's heavy stuff, but not something that one high school English class shies away from. At the Jefferson County Open School, students have been reading a book about this called The Sixth Extinction, an unnatural history. We're going to talk with the author a little later. First, CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine followed these teens as they grappled with issues of climate change, explosive population growth, and extinction. So I just read the third chapter of the sixth extinction. It's called The Original Penguin. This is James McDermott. He's 16 at home, and right now he's recording an audio diary of his thoughts at the end of each chapter of the book, The Sixth Extinction. That's the book his English class is using to study mass extinctions and climate change. This third chapter is about the auk, a cute bird that looked like a penguin, how it was hunted into extinction. And it makes me think about how now no one's really thinking about the animals they're driving to extinction, even if they're doing it inadvertently. And it just kind of makes me think about how even though humans are to blame, we don't feel the blame because we don't feel connected to the issue as we do with other issues. And also because climate change and extinction are such big issues. They're scary and controversial and sad, even for many adults. Look on page 73. But for the young people in James's English class at school, it is the issue because it's their whole future. James's teacher, Benjamin Dancer, had just read The Sixth Extinction as part of his research for a book he was writing, an eco-thriller. And it just shook me. The Sixth Extinction is a college-level book, and it's challenging for high schoolers. But Dancer says the Pulitzer Prize-winning book is written with a lightness and grace that's provocative, and at the same time doesn't dismiss the gravity of the issue. The book tells the story of species extinctions through the eyes of biologists, botanists, and geologists. He selected the book after talking with other teachers and his students. This class content satisfies one of Colorado's academic standards for students to investigate how climate change affects the Earth. The book deals with the most important issue we have to tackle as a species, the unintended consequences of continued population growth. Like climate change and species extinction. And I thought maybe we could teach this book and these issues and do it in such a way that empowers kids to rise to the challenge of their age. Frogs. Frogs survived. Kids in Dancer's English class are between 15 and 17 years old. They call him Benjamin. He sits in the circle with them, guiding them on where they want the discussion to go. Okay, where were we? We just got obliterated by the dinosaurs, did? Today, the class is going over Chapter 4. It's about the asteroid that slammed into the Gulf of Mexico 65 million years ago. The impact vaporized three-quarters of species within minutes. This asteroid extinction theory, it was initially ridiculed. Denial is a pattern, Dancer says. He asks the class why it's so hard for humans to recognize what is happening right in front of them. They discuss it in small groups. Could even go so far as to say, like, fear of death. Fear of death, says Ben Kessler, and difficulty in seeing humans' existence as one microscopic section on Earth's four-and-a-half-billion-year timeline. In fact, if the history of the Earth were a 24-hour clock, Ben learns that humans pop up in the last minute and 17 seconds. Just to think of where you would fit in on the full scale of the rest of the billions of years on Earth, you know? I feel people are afraid to accept that. 
Another student says, we don't want to put in the effort to change the way we live. Dancer says, the truth can be scary when it rocks the paradigm. Chapter 4 of The Sixth Extinction, The Luck of the Ammonites. As James reads Chapter 4, he learns about tiny sea creatures called ammonites. They lasted 140 million years until the asteroid obliterated them. It was one of five mass extinctions on Earth in the past half a billion years. You know, now that humans are alive now, we're in the sixth extinction. Except this time there's no asteroid. It's happening pretty fast compared to the average rate of one species going extinct per every thousand years. The numbers are staggering. Scientists estimate dozens of species go extinct every day. This time, it's not an asteroid. Scientists are classifying the sixth extinction as a modern man-made mass extinction event. Disappearing forests and habitat, changing climate, toxins polluting lakes, streams, and oceans, creating dead zones. Well, if the ammonites couldn't adapt to an asteroid because that was so sudden... What can we do to stop this extinction from happening? And so I think there's a way that humans can survive it. In these early chapters, James McDermott is upbeat, intrigued by the science. When he reads a chapter on how we classify periods of geologic time, he's catapulted out of the present. In his audio journal, he contemplates how the mark humans are making now will be captured for eternity. Uh, that 100 million years from now, there'll be a permanent mark on Earth from us they'll see the mass extinction that we're in right now. James, like the rest of the kids in his class, experiences a range of emotions as he reads the book. He's just read about Earth's historic fluctuations in climate and about how sharp and fast the current one is. By the end of the century, they're predicting that the Earth will have reached temperatures not seen since 50 million years ago, and that's pretty quick. If it took 50 million years for the Earth to get that hot, James says, we might have been able to adapt. Since it's that sudden, it's a shock to the ecosystem. James is realizing at this rate, current agriculture would be devastated by the end of the century. That starts to look apocalyptic. And so it just, it bums me out, honestly, (laughs) especially when I think about how little uh, it's talked about in politics. He says he heard almost nothing about ecology in election speeches. And so it makes me want to travel to these places, makes me want to... Just be in nature before it's almost gone. Teacher Benjamin Dancer suspected his students might react to the sixth extinction with a sense of guilt, even denial. It's kind of a defensive mechanism. He says his job is to give kids the analytical skills to navigate the magnitude of the issue and also reinforce that humans are an intelligent, creative people who can solve problems. One of my tasks as the teacher is to help them intellectualize it rather than personalize it. So they look at themselves, their identity as a human. Humans are causing this problem, therefore we suck. And I have to deconstruct that for them. And the way I've done it with this class is with math. Population times affluence times technology. That equation deals with how population, affluence, and technology mix to cause a human impact on the environment. Evolution's designed us to seek security. The wealthier you are, the more secure. You're going to be as secure and comfortable as your wealth allows. So you'll consume more. Poor people will consume less. Their wealth will not allow them. So, for example, when President-elect Donald Trump was born, the world's population was 2.3 billion. Now, it's about 7.5 billion. 
that extra $5 billion has a huge impact ecologically. We're not inherently bad. There are just a lot of us. Student Leela Puyer says before this class, when she read about climate change... I wasn't processing it well, but I took this class and Benjamin kind of put it in perspective for me when he said that, you know, if you cut down a tree for your family or you do this for your family, that doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you human. It makes you want to protect... Human instinct is to protect your family. The problem is, though, is that there's just too many of us doing it. So I never really, like, looked at it at that way, that it's no one human's fault. And so I kind of started processing it in a better way where, well, we can do something about this then, you know. We can't just give up. As the students read about extinction and learn about species adaptation, some of them come to a shift in thought. Sierra Ventimiglia thinks humans for once should let it be and let the human species die out when it's supposed to die. die and not try to escape to Mars. And I think humans are getting extremely arrogant and saying, we're going to go to Mars and we're going to create an entire species on Mars that revolves around humans again. I don't think we should be there. And at one point we are going to die and there's going to be other amazing species that do amazing things. And we can't think that the universe revolves around us. Mm -hmm. Revolves around us. Hearing these students have the courage to face scientific facts and look for hope is profoundly sad and uplifting. And this is where teacher Benjamin Dancer helps guide the kids towards projects where they can make a difference, setting up sustainable food systems at school or organizing a school-wide day of dialogue on the unintended consequences of continued population growth. They talk about growing sustainable food and solar roofs. The class has helped kids put the sixth extinction into perspective. Chapter 11 of the Sixth Extinction. The end of the chapter is really profound. Though it might be nice to imagine there once was a time when man lived in harmony with nature, it's not Every continent humans migrated to, they drove large herbivores like the woolly mammoth into extinction. So James says, from the get-go, it looks like humans didn't really understand sustainability. I want to change that, and I think we can change that. Do you think there's a choice? Yeah. In class, the teacher, Benjamin Dancer, asks the kids what they think. Lots of people are ignoring that there's a choice. Here's a student named Molly. They are choosing to not see the fact that they could change their ways and they could be more resourceful and they could have less kids or adopt kids. Molly and her classmates get angry at apathetic adults, at humans who drove specific species to extinction, like the great auk, that flightless penguin-like bird. Molly fell in love with that bird. And so I read scientific papers on them, and they're super awesome. And then I had to deal with getting mad at humanity and in specific, the two men that killed the last two auk. I ask if she's still in that anger. No. Because I looked farther into it, sort of, and then I realized that I could easily educate people about it. Like she did with a project on endangered frogs. She researched it, emailed people, and talked to people. I I definitely feel sad and stuff, but then I just take a second to look at it through the eyes of hope. 
And that's kind of what James is doing. Chapter 12 of the Sixth Extinction, The Madness Gene. The chapter talks about the madness gene humans have, which a Swedish scientist postulates is what drives humans to explore new lands. Lewis and Clark, Darwin, and now the people who want to inhabit Mars. If that is what makes us distinctly human, we can use that to our advantage, and there's still some exploring we can do. We can use the creativity that we have and that brilliance that we have as a species to find solutions for sustainable futures. James says it might be hard to live in harmony with the ecosystem, but he thinks we can make that choice. By the last chapter... I walk away with one idea from reading this book. It's that humans have the power to change things. We certainly change things already in the sense that we've changed landscape, we've changed We've changed ecosystems, ecosystems, he says. Drastically changed biodiversity. We've changed the atmosphere. We've changed the oceans. James says some humans fear change. That's okay. Others are more adaptable. But it's going to happen anyways, he says. And we have a choice in that change. Is that choice going to be run ourselves into the ground and, you know, potentially destroy the earth we love so much, destroy ourselves? Or do we move forward? Do we change for the better? Do we improve by lowering our carbon footprint. We have that choice. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. So we had the author of The Sixth Extinction listen to Jenny's report, and I asked Elizabeth Colbert, who also writes for The New Yorker, what she thought of the student's story. I was really moved by it. Um, I think that the kids have a very understandable reaction, which is both uh, we've got to do something about this, and it's hard and sad to think about. Did you think kids might read this book when you wrote it? Well, I, you know, when people ask me, whom are you writing for, I say, and it, it may sound a bit flippant, but I really don't intend it that way. I always say I, I am writing for for everyone, you know, every thoughtful person. And, you know, I don't expect kindergartners to pick it up, but I do think that um, high school students definitely can get a lot out of it, probably almost, you know, everything that I put into it. Have you heard of other schools using the book? I have heard of some, you know, AP environmental studies classes using it, Uh um, but I I don't know that there are a lot of high schools using it. Okay, so this might be exceptional AP advanced placement. Well, Elizabeth Colbert, uh, author of The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History. Let's pick this discussion up after a quick break. We'll dive more into the book. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And before the break, we heard a report from our education reporter, Jenny Brundine, about a class in Colorado reading The Sixth Extinction, an unnatural history. It's a book by Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker, and it is about a sixth mass extinction, one not caused by natural events, a meteor, for instance, but by human beings. And uh, the picture is not a pretty one, Elizabeth. Among other things, you say that pH levels in our oceans could dip to 7.8 by the end of the century, which would make them 150% more acidic than at the start of the Industrial Revolution. 
You write that people are obliterating the normal rate at which species become extinct. After the book came out, you made an appearance on The Daily Show, ostensibly a comedy program, uh, and you thoroughly depressed its host, Jon Stewart. On a hopeful note... Yeah, yeah. Was there a hopeful note? I did not see a hopeful note in the book. Was Was there a hopeful note? What's the answer to that? Was there a hopeful note? Well, (laughs) you know, the the book really... As, as you indicated, it, it outlines some really serious global problems, the acidification of the oceans, uh, climate change, which is, you know, proceeding very rapidly uh, in the context of, you know, the great long history of, of the world, uh, the way that we are moving species around the world every day tens of thousands of species are getting moved around the world this can have really devastating consequences we're moving diseases around the world we're moving predators around the world we are you know destroying habitat uh we're cutting down rainforests and planting you know soy plantations so all of these things if you're looking at the world from the perspective of non-human creatures are are really, really serious problems and potentially very serious problems for human creatures as well. And to end the book by saying, oh, well, but, you know, here, here are the hopeful things, uh, when all, really right now, to be honest, all of the trend lines are still going in the wrong direction, uh, that's just dishonest. So mm. I didn't want to be dishonest, um, but I also didn't want to say, you know, abandon hope, ye you enter here. Your answer there makes me wonder whether you see human beings as part of the sixth extinction or separate from it and observing it, watching it happen. And I I suppose that's asking you to predict the future of our species. But having finished the book, did you see us as experiencing the sixth extinction or merely causing it? Well, I think people often ask me that and people often jump from the you know, conclusion that we are bringing about a mass extinction or, or sort of on the verge of bringing about a mass extinction to, to we are going to go extinct. And, on, you know, on some level, that's a, it's a logical conclusion. But if you, if you look at um, the trajectory of human population, it's, you know, still increasing at a very, very rapid rate. So one of the, you know, last creatures you'd sort of expect to go extinct in a human-caused wave of extinctions uh, would be humanity. Um, so I am not, you know, predicting the end of end of Homo sapien as a species. However, I think it's important to note that there's a lot of possibilities between continued population growth at the at the rate that we've been at and extinction. There, there's all, all sorts of possibilities in there, um, and you know, a lot of them are not pretty. They're not. They involve a lot of human suffering, um, and we should be trying to avoid them. Do they come from disease mostly, as you talk to scientists? No, they they come from all sorts of different possibilities. They come from ecosystems that we depend on collapsing. They come from agricultural realms changing, right, where we grow our crops. Uh, And you can already see it um, in parts of the world that are food, uh, you know, where food scarcity is, is already an issue. Uh, and you change precipitation patterns, for example, as we are now doing, and you can get famine and you can get conflict. Um, so there are all sorts of possibilities, many of which, uh, you know, we we perhaps can't even imagine at this point. You know, there are the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And, and um, but, but I don't think that 
you have to go all the way to human extinction to imagine that there will be a lot of pain caused by what we're doing. You could have written a history of unicorns. Why did you write a book about a mass extinction? You know, of all the topics in the world, the you probably ch- would you say there's a heavier topic? I I I, I can't think of one. Well, I, I think journalists are drawn to the you know the important stories. I mean, and 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 oftentimes they are not happy stories. I mean, the war the war in Syria is not a happy story, but we certainly think it's an important story. We think, certainly think it should be covered. And as you point out, on some level, there's no bigger story right now um, than what we are doing really to the future of, you know, all of the millions probably of species with which we share the earth. We are really determining the course of life from here on in. Uh, and it, it is not, it turns out it is not a very happy story because mm. we're, our, our impacts are not happy right now. Um, but it seemed like a story that really, really needed to be told. You visited the Amazon rainforest, the Andes Mountains, the Great Barrier Reef for this book. What place most sticks with you? Because it's it's been a few years since the book came out. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed and remember very vividly my time on the Great Barrier Reef. That was truly extraordinary. It's an extraordinary place. It's unfortunately, uh, even in the time since I visited, which is about five or six years, has been damaged um, very, very noticeably by warming ocean temperatures, which have caused what's known as coral bleaching and a lot of mortality on the reef. Um, and I'm told that some of the places, you know, that I was um, look very noticeably different now. Is there uh, a spot, an image that sticks with you from there? Well, we went we went snorkeling out on the reef and there's really no, anyone anyone who's visited a reef, an, an intact reef, a healthy reef knows there's just nothing like the profusion of life that you see on a reef. Um, it can't be seen on land. You know, even when you go to the Amazon rainforest, which is a tremendously diverse ecosystem, you don't see a lot of things. You see a lot of trees. You know, the animals are very well hidden. When you're out on the reef and you're looking down, um, you know, on the fish and the rays and uh, the sharks and it, and the octopuses, it's it's just phenomenal. And then contrast that with what a bleached coral reef looks like. When coral, when you have are in the midst of a severe bleaching event, the coral, um, what, what gives corals their color actually are these tiny little plants that live inside their cell hmm. as symbionts. And when they, when the water gets warm um, through a process that I won't go into right now anyway, they, the symbionts sort of start to overproduce oxygen, actually, which is toxic uh, and at, at high concentrations. And so the little animals that are the corals, they expel these plant cells and then they turn white. They're really, they themselves are, are clear. And so the, the whole coral reef looks white. It looks ghostly. It looks like sort of like a ghost town. And the corals start to starve to death because the plants are actually supplying a lot of their energy. And if that goes on and the corals die, right, so they, they can survive for a while, they can sometimes recover. But if they, if they don't, if the bleaching event is severe enough, they don't recover, then what you start to get are these reefs that instead of being coral are basically covered with algae and they kind of look like astroturf sort of, you know, they're covered with this sort of greenish muck. 
Where did the idea of a human-caused mass extinction originate? Did you find a source of that? Well, scientists have been warning about, you know, if you want to call it the biodiversity crisis for decades now. Um, so I don't know, you know, if someone could have been said to origin have originated that thought. I am interested in sort of who labeled this the sixth extinction. Uh -huh. um, but I was not able to ascertain that either. I don't know if there's sort of a person who can claim credit for that. You do, though, meet Nobel Prize winning chemist Paul Crutzen, who coined the term Anthropocene, meaning that the era we are entering, or perhaps that we're already in, is the human epoch. That is, humans are the defining force of this era. Um, is, is that the accepted term, and are, are we in it? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of sort of technical scientific debate about that. The geological timetable, as it were, is set by this international group of, of geologists and geologists um, have their own rules for, you know, how they name epics and periods and eras and all sorts of things like that. And can be very, very contentious. Yes, this is the, um, the International Commission on Stratigraphy. Exactly. Yeah. And they are actively debating this right now. But I think informally and in the literature, you will find the world used all the time. There are now journals devoted to it. So it has um, definitely been taken up by the scientific community, even though geologists who are going to sort of have the last say on whether it's if we are officially in the Anthropocene or not, um, have not yet decided that question. All right. So that remains unsettled. The debate continues, as you say. Exactly. But if the term is officially adopted, you write that every geology textbook immediately becomes obsolete. Right. Well, we now we now live in what's called the Holocene, which is the time since the last ice age. So it's it's about twelve thousand years. Um, and if we were to decide that we live in the Anthropocene and perhaps have been living in the Anthropocene for a while, once again, where you're going to fix the base of that time period is right. is one of the questions that's up for debate. Then obviously we would no longer be living in the Holocene, and all of those charts that are, are in geology books would, would have to be updated. Right. But it's fascinating to think, when does it begin? And how do you kind of backdate it? Um, at one point, you go to Naples, Italy, where you write that you went swimming in the seas of tomorrow, today. What do you mean? Well, that's a very um, interesting area where it's a very volcanically active area. Where it's right near Mount Vesuvius. So there's a part of the Bay of Naples where there's almost pure carbon dioxide that's bubbling up out of the sea floor. And the effect of bubbling CO2 into a solution of water is to create an, an acid. When, it, when CO2 dissolves in water, it forms an acid, carbonic acid. And the impact that we are having as humans is we're dumping a lot of carbon dioxide into the air and it is a lot of it is being dissolved in the surface waters of the ocean. But if you want to say, okay, what is it going to look like as more and more CO2 gets added, as the, as the oceans become more and more acidified, well, then you can go to these places where the oceans are naturally acidified, for example, this area of the Bay of Naples, and see what the effects have been. And they're quite dramatic. Um, so we were in this area where uh, the pH of the water it has, has already reached the point that it would reach if we just continue to dump CO2 into the air, it will reach this level everywhere. 
by the end of this century, but it already has gotten there in this in this patch of the Bay of Naples. And you see that about a third uh, of the creatures that are typically present in the Mediterranean are are missing from this section and particularly hard hit by the phenomenon of ocean acidification are creatures that produce calcium carbonate, the mineral calcium carbonate, which is what forms the basis of most sea creature shells, like if, like a clam shell or a mussel shell or an oyster shell. Those are all almost you know pure calcium carbonate. Okay. Um, and those creatures, corals, a coral reef is, is calcium carbonate. So anything that's producing calcium carbonate owing to the to the chemistry involved in in that process um, seems to be particularly hard hit by changing the pH of the water. And some of what you mentioned there are things we eat. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And they're not they to are, make not to make this about us again, right? Oh, there yeah. go the humans again. But okay. Uh, we're speaking with Elizabeth Colbert of uh, The New Yorker. Her book is called The Sixth Extinction and Unnatural History. It actually came out some years ago, but we found that uh, a class in Colorado of high school students was reading it. And um, this conversation is part of our coverage of climate change. Another story we had recently, Elizabeth profiled a 16-year-old from Boulder named Shutescott Martinez. And he is actually part of a lawsuit by young people mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. that the the federal government ought to take more action on climate change simply because not doing so deprives citizens of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I asked him if he begrudged his parents for bringing him into a world with climate change. And while he said he didn't, he also expressed frustration at what his generation will have to live with, will inherit. As you started working on this book, doing this research, what were you telling your own children about climate change? I, you know, they they read what I write. They've re- read the book. Um, so I'm not telling them anything that's any different from what I tell, what I'm telling you and, and what I wrote in the book and what I tell my readers. Hmm. And how how do they react to you? Well, I, I think that like, you know, like the kids in that suit, and I really admire those kids, I think they're angry and they're angry at a generation that, you know, had all the knowledge. For example, my generation, you could say, well, our, our parents' generation, this wasn't really an issue. Um, so I'm not sure how angry we can be at them. But our generation, my generation, we, we have known about this problem for most of my adult life now uh, and done pretty little to try to ameliorate the situation. And so I think young people have, have the right to be pretty angry and upset. And when I speak to young people, which I often do on college campuses, I urge them to be angry and to convert that anger into political action. And, you know, I was very saddened to read in the aftermath of the election that, you know, a lot of young people didn't vote. That is not wise. Thanks so much for being with us, Elizabeth. Well, thanks very much for having me. Elizabeth Colbert is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of The Sixth Extinction, which a group of high school students in Lakewood read this year. It's about climate change, population growth, and mass extinction. Colbert joined us via Skype from her home in Williamstown, Massachusetts. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Porch pirates aren't the only thing online shoppers have to think about. The U.S. Supreme Court has let stand a Colorado law that requires online retailers like Amazon to tell customers how much they owe in state sales tax. 
Officials say Colorado has been missing out on close to $200 million a year in revenue. So what does this mean if you've been buying stuff online for the holidays? Lynn Granger is going to answer that for us. She's spokesman for the Colorado Department of Revenue. Lynn, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So first, this all stems from a law that state legislators passed in 2010, right? That's correct. Yeah, and the 2010 law is actually a reporting law and is designed to increase compliance with the use tax law that has actually been on Colorado books since about 1937. Ah, I see. So this uh, long predates the Internet. But in 2010, essentially, lawmakers said online retailers, and perhaps you can tell us which ones, uh, be more specific about that, uh, must report to customers, gosh, this is how much you owe in tax and it's your responsibility to pay, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And those are online retailers that don't have a presence in Colorado, bricks and mortar, is that right? That's correct. Okay. And um, this is a state tax, to be clear? It is, yes. No. And compliance with it was just not very high. That is to say, people were buying stuff online from a retailer like Amazon. That's the one most often identified and simply weren't paying it. Yeah, I think it was just a lack of knowledge, really, that the, that this was a requirement. So, um, again, this has been on the book since 1937, um, but uh, the purchases could be made prior to that, you know, by mail, telephone, and now we're just seeing more frequently those online purchases. Um, and so we, you know, had that 2010 law um, for reporting, and we also uh, made it a little easier for people to report their consumer use tax. How so? So, um, so, of course, you know, the Colorado Department of Revenue is um, dedicated to assisting our customers in complying with state's laws, rules, and regulation, and also making that compliance as convenient as possible. So, to that end, there are actually three ways for taxpayers now to remit consumer use tax, and one of those is actually new uh, for the 2015 tax year uh Folks could remit that on remit that tax on their individual income tax form. Um, they can also use the department's free revenue online service, which is available at www.colorado.gov forward slash revenue. Or the consumer use tax actually has its own Department of Revenue form, which is form 0252. That's also available on our website. So again, three ways for uh, Colorado taxpayers to remit that consumer use tax. Form 0252, my favorite form. Kidding. Uh, Why would people do this? In other words, is there anything, you know, are there any teeth here? Well, so currently, um, this is self-reporting. So there is a requirement for taxpayers to self-report their consumer use tax currently. So you're putting faith in people to do this and to pay the state? Currently, yes. Right. So that could change, it sounds like. It could. Okay. And let's say I have been buying stuff online, or as you say, even by phone for years. Do I have a responsibility as a consumer to kind of pay the the back tax on all of that, or do you just think this is about something moving forward? Well, again, it's a it's a self reporting requirement currently. Okay, so I think you're opening the door for people to be retroactively and proactively honest. Could I say that? Yes. Okay. Uh, So the effect of this Supreme Court ruling is that Colorado's more recent law to kind of um, mandate that companies reveal this to consumers, how much they owe, that that will stand. I do understand that there is still an injunction in place. So what, what, what does this mean practically for a consumer today? 
Sure. So although the status of the state case is likely to be impacted by the Tenth Circuit's ruling in favor of the state, um, and of course the U.S. Supreme Court's denial to hear it, um, the state court preliminary injunction remains in place at this time. So we're, you know, the decision was just made last week. We're kind of um, evaluating and looking at what our next steps are. Um, Of course, one of those steps will be to, you know, lift this injunction. But right now that remains in place. All right. So uh, I just bought, for instance, some silly gifts online for friends, blankets that make them look like mermaids. So they have little fish tails on them. What, what should I do with that purchase as a consumer in Colorado right now? Sure. So again, uh, three ways to remit that sales tax. So it's a 2.9% uh, sales tax. Um, and if you've got that purchase and you calculate the 2.9% that you would owe, then you can go, you know, again, to one of those three options, okay. the DR form or online um, when it's time for you to file uh, in January. Um, and remit that tax. Okay. Even with the injunction in place, you're suggesting that people take those steps. Absolutely. You know, we we really want to give our brick and mortar stores, um, you know, a a fair playing field here in the state. So I think we absolutely encourage folks to to, um, self-report their consumer use tax. Okay. I just realized if my friends are listening, they now know what they're getting for the holidays. But um, (laughs) do you think this is a game changer for the state budget? Um, you know, again, we're we're taking a look at it. I mean, Colorado did estimate in 2010 that it um, lost or and will continue to lose about 20 million each year um, in non-reported uh, consumer use tax. Um, and the the losses in 2012 were estimated to be around 170 million. So, um, yeah, I do think that's pretty significant. And anything more to say about the potential for stiffer enforcement? I mean, it sounds like there might be conversations going on there. Can you expound? Uh, not really. Again, we're, we're taking a look at what the decision means and, and what our next steps will be going forward. All right. Lynn, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Lynn Granger, she's a spokeswoman for the State Department of Revenue, and we discussed how the Supreme Court essentially upheld Colorado's so-called Amazon tax. Coming up, highlights from a year in indie music from CPR's Open Air. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They have their fingers on the pulse of new music over at Open Air, and that includes bands from Colorado. As 2016 winds down, let's get some highlights from the year in local indie music. Jesse Witten is music director at CPR's Open Air. Hi, Jesse. Hey, Ryan. I'm really excited that you've chosen some acts I don't know all that well, so I have some listening to do, more listening to do. First up, uh, the band Spells. Tell us more about its lead singer, who is not a full-time musician. Not full-time, but he adds it to his list of many things. A lot of people who are fans of local comedy are going to know him as a stand-up. More recently, as an actor, as his TV show, Those Who Can't, got picked up by True TV, just finished off its second season. We're still wondering what's going on with the third. But despite all of that, keeping the stand-up going, the show, acting, writing on it, he keeps this band going while he lives in L.A. So he comes back to Colorado, works on the songs, has his practices, has a lot of shows around town too so he keeps the music going and he is ben roy ben yes. roy stand-up comedian uh doer of all arts a doer of all, exactly <laughs> and on this show those who can't which is about this high school in denver and these really dysfunctional teachers but let's hear something from his musical side this is the freak out from the spells album staying in is the new going out
so their lead singer is a comedian. Is the band's music particularly funny? You know, the music I wouldn't say is funny. It has a sense of humor and fun thread throughout it. Ben's not the only funny member. They're all really funny people, and their shows are insanity. Okay, so this is Spells, a band to check out. And is that typical of their sound, what we just heard? Definitely. That okay. really fun kind of manic feeling. Manic. <laughs> That's how I say it. Maybe you have to be that to be engaged in all of those different arts. Uh, tell us about the Denver band Dressy Bessie. Uh, this year, they put out their first album in eight years. Dressy Bessie. This is a band that goes back back to the 1990s. They were part of that Elephant Six collective that was huge in Colorado, getting its start with a lot of indie bands like uh, like the Minders, who recently came through town, now based in Portland, share some members uh, with those bands. But Dressy Bessie had taken a break. They took a break for about eight years before coming out with this new record in 2016. So needless to say, we were eager to hear it and it didn't disappoint. It didn't disappoint. Uh, did you miss them? <laughs> you gotta miss someone as bubbly and fun as this band. And these these two people who live in Denver play great live shows, so it was great to hear them recorded again. Okay, so the title track, let's hear it from Dressy Bessie's first in a long time album called King Sized. King Sized. Okay. She's King What did you like about this album? You said it dis- didn't disappoint. Well, you saw me bopping my head just now. Uh-huh. You can't help but bop to something like this. And there's a real throwback sound here. It's new music. Thrilled to have something new. But it really stays true to everything you want from a Dressy Bessie album. It takes you back to the very first time you heard them in the 90s and fell. And I'm falling again with the new one. It's like they know who they are. They are. And they're, they're not ashamed of it. They're proud of who they are. And they stick to it. That is easy to get stuck in your head. Oh, it'll happen. Ba-da-ba-ba. Watch out. See? Already it's already there. I'm already there. Yep. Okay, up next, a Colorado Springs act, Eros and the Escaton. This was one of my favorites of the year. The new album is Weight of Matter. It's their sophomore record, and these guys are just doing such great things in Colorado Springs. That scene has just grown so much. They play so many shows. They also come to Denver time to time. They had their album release show with us, and it's just such a rocking album. That's really what stands out. It's great indie rock. But you say that they are reflective of a broader trend out of Colorado Springs, that 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 music scene in particular is hopping? It really is, And, and we've talked about a lot of Colorado Springs music this year. We Are a Glum Lot or a band that are also in Colorado Springs. We Are a Glum Lot. Isn't that a wonderful name? Yes, best best band name of at least the day. <laughs> it's not a morose sounding band, but it's it's a great band name. But okay. They've introduced me to a lot. They work with a lot of people down there, and they're just a really energetic band that managed to come out with a great sophomore record. Okay, so let's hear from Eros and the Escaton. Uh, this is called RXX. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm 
Jesse Witten, we're hearing a lot of female voices. I like this. Oh, I'm, I'm all about it. <laughs> and Kate's a really fierce lead singer and incredible instrumentalist as well. In this particular song, we asked Kate, what's the deal behind this song? There's a story here. And there definitely is. She talked about this idea of being in a band these days. Gonna lose some of the romance of being a rock star back in the day with the intimacy and access of the internet. Who are the rock stars? What are those rock and roll legends we'll have now? Will mm. they compare to what was going on in the 60s and 70s? And so she's meditating on that in this song. She's, she's meditating and feeling nostalgic for an era she was never actually a part of. This is Kate Perdoni. Is that yep. right? Okay. Uh, the next act you pick has one member in Denver and another in Germany. That doesn't seem terribly easy. This is Y'all. Y-A-W-L. Yeah, it seems like it wouldn't make any sense, but it actually does. Uh, Just because of the way MC Braden Smith works, he's based here in Colorado, but he actually has a stronger following throughout Europe. Okay. I don't quite know how it came to that point, but Braden was actually on tour in Germany uh, about a year or so ago, and it was a poorly attended show, not many people there, so he had a lot of time to talk afterwards with the people who made it out to the show, (laughs) and actually ran in to Sebastian Berkel, who's a producer in Germany. They kind of fell for each other, fell for the music, and decided to make a project together. I see. Across the oceans. Let's yeah. hear Woe from Y'all. The blind woman that knew a beauty Not in a cocky sense Knew exactly what we were Yeah, but in another friend You still got more than you could ever say It's all psychology There's a lot of beautiful layering in that. Oh, yeah. Well, and that makes sense because the way they built the songs was piece by piece, layer by layer. So you're hearing it build up to what you're hearing now. Okay, so that's Woe, and the group is Y'all, Y-A-W-L. Okay, you wanted to share one of your favorites from the band Slim Cessna's Auto Club. Tell us what they've been up to. Well, they're another one of those bands with a ton of history, decades they've been together. And they've always been considered a Colorado band, um, even when they didn't live here, Mm. even when they weren't based in Colorado. We had that pride. We kept it. But uh, now they're actually all here in Colorado again, working together. And that's allowed them to really work on their craft and try out some new things. So they have tried out some new things and they've actually just released this new album The Commandments according to Slim Cessna's Auto Club on their very own record label and here's Commandment 4 we worked hard today but the work ain't done Slim Cessna's Auto Club, that's Commandment 4. And our thanks to Jesse Witten, music director at CPR's Open Air. You can find more year-end recommendations from the staff at Open Air at CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner.